You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We do have our sermon slides available in our Google Drive folder. You can access that link through our bulletin if you want to. So that you can look at those at a later time or follow along with us this morning. John chapter 6, we've been saying throughout our study in the Gospel of John that John writes, and ultimately he says this so we don't have to wonder, he writes for the purpose of uh, the reader believing, right? And we said that this isn't uh, strictly for the unbeliever to come to a state of belief to where that person gets saved. That's certainly uh, one of the, the fruits that John wants to see, but This gospel is also written for saved people to increase in their belief about Jesus. And we've talked all along about how ultimately what we're wanting to see as Christians through our study in John is that we reduce the amount of time it takes for us to turn to trust Jesus when we are going through times where we need to trust him. That too often we will uh, wallow in despair or or labor in in a way that, that causes us to be frustrated or worried or or anxious, and then at some point we come around to trusting Jesus. Um, And so we want to use our study as a means to reduce the amount of time that it takes us to get to that point where we are trusting Jesus. And I think today's story is um, another uh, example of how John has written and how Jesus worked in such a way to produce this type of result In the lives of his disciples. I'll start reading for us in John chapter 6, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Our summary sentence for today is that Jesus creates intentional opportunities for us to appropriate the knowledge we gain about him into our daily lives, especially by leading us into encounters with earthly problems that require heavenly solutions. Jesus creates intentional opportunities for us to appropriate the knowledge we gain about him into our daily lives, especially by leading us into encounters with earthly problems that require heavenly solutions. For our kids, what we learn about God should change what we do every day. Okay, so 
Ultimately, what we're seeing in this passage is that Jesus wants to create intentional opportunities for his followers to have to take the knowledge that has been given to them. So he's been faithfully teaching, he's been faithfully demonstrating, now it's test day. And we see that in the life of Philip. It's test day. Do you know how to take the knowledge that you have gained and seize it and make it yours personally for your daily life? Can you take in theory what has been said about God and use it on a daily basis for what you are encountering? Jesus gives us intentional opportunities as his followers to apply what it is we are learning. It's why we should always be anticipating that whatever we're learning here on a Sunday morning or whatever we're learning in our personal study, we should anticipate that there is going to be opportunities to where God is going to test our faith to see if we are ready to implement the things that we are learning about him. He is not concerned about simply increasing our knowledge or awareness of him mentally. He wants to see that translated outwardly outwardly when different opportunities are thrown our way. So he's going to create intentional opportunities. I think this story, Jesus intentionally sets it up the way that he does. All right, and we're going to see that, that he intentionally creates all the details here so that Philip has a test placed before him. He creates these intentional opportunities so that we have this chance to appropriate, to take the knowledge that we gain about him and make it our own, to, to implement it into our daily lives. And he does that a lot of times by leading us to encounter earthly problems that require heavenly solutions. And so for our younger kids this morning, I would want them to, to walk away today understanding that we learn about God. What we learn about God should change what we do every day. The things that we hear in our, in our different lessons, it should shape the way that we make choices and decisions. It should shape the way that we, we react to circumstances, okay? As you're continuing to write that down, if you're taking notes, um, I said earlier, this is the only miracle beyond the resurrection that is to be recorded in all four Gospels. Um, if you're like me, I think most of the times that this story has been presented to me, kind of the crescendo or climax of of what the teacher is, is, is moving towards involves the example of the boy with the, the loaves and the fish. That ultimately what we should learn from this story is that we should make ourselves available, that whatever resources we have, we should be willing to give those to God and that he can use those and expound upon those. Which is certainly a true concept. I'm just not sure if that's really the thrust of this story, right? Because hopefully you saw in reading the other three accounts, the boy's not even mentioned in the other three stories right? Like he was so insignificant to the people who were writing and recounting this. They don't even mention the boy. They don't even mention where the loaves and the fish come from, which makes me wonder, you know, is this boy really this great example of faith or not? We don't really know. I mean, if it was somebody like my son, AJ, and, and, and he had the five loaves and two fish and somebody came asking for it, he would give it over more because he was scared versus because he was trying to demonstrate faith, right? And we do know from these accounts that the disciples were sent out into the crowd to find out if there was any available food, right? So it's not like this boy is just kind of walking by and hears some disciples talking about how they need food, and he's like, oh, let me give you my lunch, right? He was probably asked, and he probably was honest and said, I got five loaves and two fish, and so they, they may have just grabbed him and, and took him, taken him to Jesus, right? 
We'll talk a little bit more about the boy. I just don't think he's the, the crescendo of this story. Instead, I think that this miracle that, that's listed for us here, it's less about satisfying physical hunger, and it's more about addressing spiritual starvation. It's less about satisfying physical hunger. It's more about addressing spiritual starvation. One, these disciples have been feasting on the words of Christ, but have yet really to ingest it to the point that it's changed them in the ways that Jesus wants to see them changed, right? They're still a work in progress, okay? So you've got the disciples who need to get this miracle into their system so they can grow, but you also have these crowds who are continuing to come for the sake of the signs, right? We're told that these, these followers are coming because he's healing sick people. We're not told that there's a lot of sick in this crowd, but it's safe to assume that certainly people are bringing sick people with them if they're coming because he heals sick people, right? And so uh, the miracle is less about physical starvation uh, and, and more about spiritual starvation um, that, that Jesus wants to address. The miracle also sets the stage for Jesus's teaching about the bread of life in heaven that follows this story. So he is setting himself up to have a monumental illustration to then teach spiritual truths. So it's not just about feeding their physical hunger. It's about giving them something spiritual. And so he's being very intentional to set the stage to have that teaching opportunity. Some people who are critical of uh, miracles and uh, critical of the supernatural will look at this story, read it, and try to explain it away as though this is a great uh, expression of generosity by everybody that was present there. That ultimately, Jesus uses this boy as an example to the crowds and says, look, this boy is willing to share. Everybody else that has something should share as well. And it ended up being enough for everybody to eat. And that it's kind of explained away as this great act of generosity, right? So people who are critical of miracles, critical of the supernatural, will take an account like this and try to explain it away as though, yes, everybody got to eat, but it was because everybody decided to share, and that in and of itself, you could call that maybe a miracle because Jesus was able to impact their hearts to do so. We know that's not the case for two different reasons, I think. One, John includes this as one of the very few miracles that he includes, right? So he sees this as a unique thing that Jesus does beyond just asking some people to share their food. Secondly, and maybe more importantly as to why we know that this is not the case, is that the people want to crown him as king in response to this, right? Nobody is wanting to take him by force and crown him as king if he simply asked everybody to share their food, right? That something miraculous certainly took place here to where these crowds are ready to, in a state of exuberation, take this individual and make him their king and follow him, right? So certainly something miraculous has taken place here in this story, all right? Let's look at it. Um, and break it down and see some things that apply to us today in response to what Jesus has to say and what John has to write about here. All right, first in our notes, I want us to see, do not miss opportunities to serve when you are on a break. Do not miss opportunities to serve when you are on a break. For our kids, we should always be willing to serve other people. Now, I don't know if you saw the context for some of the other accounts about what's taking place here, because for us, this just follows chapter five after Jesus gets done doing some teaching. He's healed the, the man by the pool. You read these other accounts, though, and you see and understand there's a time gap 
in between Jesus healing this man at the pool and this taking place. And some of the things that were happening right before is Jesus had sent his disciples out on a teaching ministry. So they've kind of exhausted themselves, kind of like Connor. They've gone away for a time period and they've been pouring themselves out and teaching and they are tired and they are exhausted. In addition to that, we learn that John the Baptist has just been killed. And, and, and is dead, and it was a tragic loss in the way that he was killed. And so the disciples and Jesus are tired and also grieving and decide to retreat and, and take a break. Like they, they need to get away, they need to rest. In fact, one account tells us they've been so busy, they haven't even taken time to eat at times. They've had so many people coming and going in their ministry that at times they've even forgotten to eat, which helps explain why they would do all this and get to this point and not have food with them because they've been so busy, so consumed, they haven't even stopped to think about their personal daily needs. Okay, so a lot is happening. A lot is taking place. The disciples and Jesus are exhausted and they rightfully need to retreat. And Jesus even tells them, we need to get away and rest a little bit. But we're told the crowd follows them. And we're told that in a state of compassion, Jesus serves them. It's a great reminder to us that even when we reach points of needing to take a break, right? We maybe minister all weekend at, or all week at work with our families. We hit the weekend. That's time for us to rest and relax and do some personal things to not miss opportunities that may pop up during those times of break to serve other people. Um, I know a lot of people are intentional even with how they use their vacation time as an opportunity to minister to people and not just take a week off from being a Christian, right? Sometimes we think vacation time means, okay, I don't have to really do any of the things that I typically do spiritually. This is a time to rest and relax and not have to do any of that, right? So a lot of times we read the Bible less on vacation. We, we are intentional with gospel conversations less on vacation. Even within our families, we're probably less intentional with the gospel. This is a great reminder that even when you're at your weakest your tiredest, even when you're at your saddest, that it's not an opportunity or it's not an excuse to not minister to people that need it, that, that we should always have hearts of compassion. Jesus sets a great example here for us, right? It's important to find ways to rest and recuperate after laboring well, but it's also important to be sensitive. So it's important to find ways to rest and recuperate after laboring well. Jesus sets that example for us. But number two, it's also important to be sensitive to those who are in need even when you're resting. It's important to be sensitive to those who are in need, even when resting. So it says, after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. All right, number one, don't miss opportunities to serve when you're on break. Number two, do not fail in applying your knowledge to everyday life. Do not fail in applying your knowledge to everyday life. For our kids, we should look to God first when we have a problem. All right, this is, this is test day for Philip. We are told that Jesus has intentionally orchestrated the day's events in order to test him. Jesus knows exactly how this day is going to play out. He has planned this day accordingly. 
and he is giving Philip specifically a test to see how he will respond. Will Philip take the knowledge that he has been given? Will Philip take the knowledge that he has learned both through previous schooling opportunities where he would have been immersed in the Old Testament growing up as a Jew? Will he take opportunity for the things that Jesus has specifically taught him and even things that Jesus has done in his midst? Will those things that have informed him about who God is and the power that Jesus possesses Will those things then be taken advantage of in his own daily life when he needs it? That's the test that's being given to Philip here. Will he turn his attention to Jesus based on the knowledge that he possesses? So number one here, Jesus intentionally allowed this problem. This isn't Jesus coming into a situation, looking around and saying, oh man, we don't have any food. This would be a great time to test Philip right? Like this isn't, this isn't a secondary thought by Jesus that he wants to minister to these people. Oh, and on the side note here, we'll see if Philip can pass a test or not. This is very intentional by Jesus to create this situation. Jesus leads this large group of hungry people, and he makes no prior provision to provide food for them, right? Jesus knows these people are going to follow him. Jesus knows how he is going to take care of them with the food. So he makes no prior provision. He doesn't tell the disciples, hey, I'd like for us to go take a vacation, but there's a good chance people are going to follow us, so we probably need to anticipate that. We need to make some plans for either stopping our teaching early so that people can get to dinner, or we need to bring food, or we just need to put out a word that, hey, if you're going to follow us over here, you're probably going to want to bring a snack because we're planning on going a pretty far ways away. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He intentionally lets these people follow, intentionally leads them so far away that it creates a problem, all right? The passage tells us, and the other passage inform us as well, that there's 5,000 men. A lot of commentators and writers speculate that there was more than 5,000 when you added women and children into it, right? So it could have been upwards of 15,000 people that would end up needing to be provided for here. But in the thing that I would want you to really catch here is that Jesus creates this problem or allows this problem, right? Nothing sinful here. He's not doing anything sinful here. He's just allowing an opportunity or creating an opportunity where he is needed, that he needs to be seen as the all-sufficient provider, right? So Jesus allows this problem to take place. Number two, he intentionally magnified the issues of the problem. It's not just that there's a big group of people that are hungry He intentionally makes it worse. He magnifies the issues. And he starts by making his disciples aware of how big the issue is, right? He wants the disciples to get down into the nitty-gritty details of how big of an issue this is, right? So we think and read this passage as though it just happened real quick. Like, oh, everybody's hungry. Oh, we need food. Hey, this boy is standing right here and had five loaves and two fish. Maybe we can do something with that. And then, boom, everybody just has food and they're eating, right? Like, think about it. Five to 15,000 people that the disciples are told to to tell them to sit down at one point, right? They're supposed to go ask them if they have food, right? This probably played out for a little while. Why? Because Jesus really wants his disciples to grasp the situation because it's going to make the miracle all the more meaningful for them. He intentionally exposes the disciples to the severity of the issue. One, he starts by asking Philip, who is from the area, for information about how to buy food. 
So why Philip? Well, because Philip's from here. And so Philip's the guy you would want to ask and say, hey, where are the convenience stores? Where are the restaurants? Where are the marketplaces? Where can we get food for these people? Because Jesus is looking around saying, looks to me like there's nowhere to buy food. And Philip kind of confirms that, that yeah, there's not anywhere to buy food. Then he sends his disciples out, like I said, to find out, does anybody have any food? He wants them to understand the severity of this issue. There's not enough money to purchase the food, even if they had a place to purchase food, right? In several of the uh, gospel accounts, we're told that it would take 200 denarii to buy enough food to even give people a snack, basically, right? This, this, this concept of money represents a day's wage, right? So ultimately, Philip's saying, you'd have to take 200 days worth of work to buy enough food to provide for these people. And even then, we're talking about a, a, a little bag of Teddy Grahams. I mean, we're not talking about, here's a meal that you can count as dinner. This is what you get on an airplane to kind of hold you over until you get to the food court, right? And he said, it, at best, at best, if we had 200 days labor, we could buy everybody a snack. So that gives us an idea of how many people we're talking about and even the cost. And the disciples are saying, we don't even have that. I mean, think about, and maybe you don't know, but if you know your daily wage, think about how much money you would be on the hook for if you had 200 days worth of wages that you had to pay to buy everybody dinner. So Philip's kind of looking at it and saying, there's not really an answer here. there's, There's nowhere to buy food. But on top of that, even if we had food, we can't afford it. Like it's so astronomical, the cost of what we're talking about here. There's really no way to provide food for these people. Not enough money to purchase the food. Not a place to purchase the food, even if they had the money. And then once they're sent out to find food, from their assessment, there's not enough food on hand to even share with everyone. So the the human rationale is the problem is insurmountable. It's too costly and not even available for this situation. I don't know if you ever find yourself in these type of situations where the human rationale doesn't make sense and the calculator doesn't make sense. And when you sit down and you assess the situation, it just doesn't make sense. One commentator uh, drew me to the story of David Goliath. And that's another one of those stories where you just kind of read it so much and you've heard it so much that rarely do you feel the need to go look up the story of David and Goliath because you just know that story, right? But I went and kind of read through the story of David and Goliath because here's another situation where all the, all the calculations would say this doesn't happen, right? Like they, Goliath's way too big, David's way too small, Goliath's armor and his weapons are way too, way too better than, than what David has. Like it just doesn't work. Like the calculations don't work, right? Um, what, what, I, what I don't know that I've ever realized, or at least I had forgotten until this week, is that David's actually running when he kills Goliath versus like standing put. Like in my picture, Goliath's kind of coming and he's the arrogant, confident one. And David's just kind of sitting back waiting with his sling. And then he's, you know, he hits him with the rock. The passage actually says that David steps up and is running into battle to take on Goliath and slings the rock as he's running towards Goliath to kill him. So here's a guy who all the calculations say, don't do this. And he says, I'm doing it, right? Like, 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 all the odds are stacked against me, but, but my God is going to deliver Goliath into my hands. And he runs into it. Doesn't sit back passively and wait to see, like runs charging into it. 
Disciples aren't running and charging into anything here, right? Like they're the negative Nancys who are saying, there's not enough food, there's not enough money, and there's no place to buy food, right? The calculations don't work. So they're given the test, Philip specifically, and his response is to say, doesn't work. Number three, Jesus intentionally prepared this opportunity. He gives them ample time to connect the dots and their need to trust him. I told you, I think Jesus drags this out a little bit. This isn't just, oh man, like you only gave us five minutes to trust you and we dropped it and we, we failed that test. If you'd give me a little bit longer, my mind would have started working and I would have realized you've turned water into wine, you've done some other crazy stuff, surely you can give us food right here. This isn't like a five-minute, hey, I gave you a question, you didn't have the answer, boom, here's the answer kind of thing. I think he gives them ample time to connect the dots. I think he gives them ample time to process, and they still come up short in their trust here. Jesus expects us to apply the knowledge we gain about him. The test is created as an opportunity to respond faithfully in a daily crisis. The goal is to challenge their unbelief, to increase and strengthen their belief moving forward. He wants them to not underestimate his power next time. I mean, this is true of any type of situation where you have some type of teaching taking place. Typically, there is some type of test that comes afterwards, right? In in the school setting, we are going to teach, 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 and then we're going to give some type of assessment to show and to prove that you have mastered that content, And there's all kinds of ways and all kinds of studies that will show, like, what's the best way to assess that. But ultimately, as a student, you expect to be tested on what you've been taught. As a football coach, we tell our kids all the time, Friday night for a varsity football team is its payday. It's the opportunity to demonstrate what you have worked on and learned all week, and you get to show whether you've mastered it or not. It's your test. Have you you put in the work? Have you obtained the knowledge? Have you mastered the skills to perform well on a Friday night? That's exactly what's happening here. These disciples have sat, they've watched, they've learned, they've listened. Now it's your time to show whether you can take that knowledge and make it your own personally. The disciples had every reason to believe God could provide, right? Think about some of the things that have happened. One, he's already worked miracles that reflect his ability to provide. He turned the water into wine. But number two, God has shown himself to be more than capable in the past to meet this need. The disciples as Jews would have been huge fans of Moses. We've already seen Moses referenced in um, John chapter five as being kind of the hope of the Jewish people, right? Like obey Moses, obey his laws, you'll be good in, in front of God. So they would have known Moses. They knew that God had provided in the wilderness, Right? And that's not Jesus, that's not God taking pre-existing food and making more of it. That's God providing food that didn't previously exist in the wilderness, right? So that's one to two million people. And sometimes we lose sight of that because we watch movies like The Ten Commandments and we just see some people leaving with Moses and we don't have a, a real concept of how many people we're talking about. It's been estimated that one to two million people left Egypt with Moses, Right? And so God's providing for one to two million people on a daily basis food without any pre-existing material. They would have been very familiar with that. But on top of that, there's other examples in the Old Testament of how God took pre-existing food and made a lot more of it to provide for his people. 
Hopefully you talked about some of these, but I want to reference these for you so you can go back and look to them on your own. But in 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 9, this is the story of Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So we just kind of read over that real quick. This lady has probably been anticipating death for for weeks now, that if things don't change, we're going to run out of food. She's come to this final day. They may have not eaten the past couple of days to try to extend it even longer. She's in desperation mode here, and and Elijah communicates God's going to provide, and he provides abundantly, right? Enough for them to eat and enough for them to keep eating until the drought ends. You fast forward to later in this chapter, or actually, um, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 4. There's two accounts in 2 Kings chapter 4. So 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Now the wife, uh, this is Elisha now. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. She poured, they brought the vessels, as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Again, God taking something pre-existing, small amount, multiplying it in a greater way. But at the end of this chapter, you get another passage that's very similar to what we see in the New Testament in verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. It's even the same kind of bread mentioned in John chapter 6. 20 loaves. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. What's the pattern here that we see? God's always taking a small amount, multiplying it to provide for his people. And there's typically excess left over, right? So these are, these are stories they would have been very familiar with in the Old Testament, on top of the fact they've seen Jesus acting and working and moving in ways that at least would make you think that he could be capable of doing something, even if he's not yet done anything to this magnitude. And yet the calculations, according to Philip, is that we cannot feed these people, right? 
But Jesus intentionally prepared this opportunity, gave them enough knowledge to respond in a faithful way because of his past faithfulness, right? So a quote that we've used in the past from John Piper, confidence in someone's future reliability is grounded in a history of past faithfulness. So how do I know that somebody's going to be reliable in the future? Well, I just look to their past to see if they've been faithful, right? If they haven't been faithful in the past, they're probably not going to be faithful in the future. If I have an employee that typically shows up late to work, I'm less likely to ask them to do something first thing in the morning tomorrow because I'm not sure if they'll be there on time to even do it, right? But if I have somebody that I know spot on every day, they are there on time, hey, I need somebody to do something tomorrow, I'm gonna ask that person because, man, their past faithfulness makes me believe that tomorrow I can rely upon them, right? So why do we read the Old Testament if the book of Hebrews kind of tells us, hey, we've moved into a new covenant. A lot of the things in the Old Testament we don't do anymore because that's the old covenant. So why even read it? Why even study it? Why even use it? Because it's chock full of past faithfulness of God that we can lean upon in the present and into the future. Why do we trust God with our future? Because he's been faithful every single time in the past, right? So we need to immerse ourselves in God's past faithfulness so that it translates into present trust. So you struggle to trust God in your present circumstances, then you probably need to spend some time studying the Old Testament to see God's time and time again faithfulness to his people. It will increase your trust in the present day. We have knowledge of God. We see him working around us, but do we allow that to carry over into our life's experiences? The disciples had knowledge of God. They saw him working and doing miracles. They weren't allowing it to carry over into their personal experience. Here's what one commentator said, and I love the way that he says this. There is nothing that God has done in the life of any other Christian at any period of history that he's not able to do in yours if it's his plan for your life. There's nothing that God has done in the life of any other Christian at any period of history that he's not able to do in yours if it's his plan for your life. Doesn't guarantee that God will always do it, but it certainly guarantees that he's capable of doing it if it fits within his plans and purposes, which we've been talking about in the Gospel of John as well. Number four, Jesus intentionally planned a response. So he plans the problem, he magnifies the issues, he prepares the opportunity by equipping his disciples to have exactly what they need to respond faithfully. They just don't. And then Jesus intentionally plans a response. We're told in this passage, he knew exactly what he was going to do. But he asked Philip the question to test him. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down and about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, does Jesus distribute this personally to every single person? Not according to the other accounts, right? According to the other accounts, he does it through the disciples, and he makes the disciples go and do it. Another teaching opportunity, right? Put your hands on the loaves and the fish and continue to see that your hands don't run empty as you pass these things out. There's no contradiction here, right? Because you could say last week that I, that I passed some things out to you for Application Sunday, 
But I did that through Adam McLeod and Topi, I think. Right? So Jesus distributes it. He just chooses to use his disciples. John just doesn't include that detail. But Jesus uses his disciples to get their hands dirty to make sure that they remember his provision here. He responds to exceed uh, the best human solutions, right? The disciples were just trying to figure out how to get the bag of Teddy Grahams to the kids, to the people, right? Like, we're just looking for a snack right now. Like, we're just looking for some crackers right now. But the passage, Jesus exceeds those expectations, right? Fills them up on a buffet. Fills them up on a buffet. Some of us went to Whitewater last week and got the surprise of our life when we walked into this restaurant and found out that it wasn't just order a meal, it was buffet day, right? And it was all-you-could-eat catfish nugget day, right? Exceeded my expectations. I had, I had zero expectations about being filled with catfish going into this restaurant. On top of that, all the sides were un, unlimited as well, right? I definitely ate my full or my fill last Saturday. Jesus says, I'm not just interested in like giving you a little bit to hold you over. I'm going to exceed your expectations, which is exactly what Ephesians 3.20 tells us, right? That, that, he, that he gives us far more than we could ask or think. Like even in our best case scenario plans, Jesus is like, I got something better than that for you. The leftovers there or afterwards um, is, is another nod to the fact that he exceeded these expectations. He models thanksgiving prior to provision through prayer. Think about it. He doesn't pray and bless it after he's multiplied it. He's all right, everybody, let's get together. Let's pray for the food that we're about to eat. Everybody's looking around going, what food? Like, the disciples are like, really, what food? Like, we don't have any food really to even pray over. Jesus is another example of what we've talked about. We want to believe and trust God before he actually does it. That when we talk about what John's saying, we want you to believe. We want you to believe before you see it. Jesus models that. He says, I'm going to pray and bless the food. Then I'm going to multiply it and create the food. It's a good example about not complaining about what we don't have, but rejoicing over what we do have. Jesus intentionally has the disciples disperse the food and collect the leftovers. He wants the miracle to really set in. He shows great care to make sure none of the leftovers are even lost. It's like, why does Jesus even care about the leftovers here? He's very intentional to collect them, to make sure that nothing is lost from the leftovers. Man, it serves as a great example when a few verses later, he talks about making sure that none of his people are lost in salvation, that those who the Father gives to him will come to him. He will make sure that nobody is lost, All right? He shows great care over the leftovers. He certainly shows great care over the people that have been given to him. Number three, do not despair by limiting God with human solutions. Do not despair by limiting God with human solutions. For our kids, we should always be available for God to use. Do not despair by limiting God with human solutions. Andrew has kind of this um, definitely despaired type response when he says, hey, we went into the crowds, you know, we've, we got the loaves and the fish that are available, and we've got this one kid here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? We don't have to despair when we look at the human solutions and feel like they're, they're lacking and think that God still can't deliver, right? A couple things that I would want us to remember here. And even though I don't think this boy is ultimately the, the big deal here, and, 
I'm not even fully convinced that he is a great example of faith because I just don't have enough detail in the story to account for this. I do think it's worth mentioning that we can make a difference even with the limited resources that God does give to us. So he may or may not be, but let's, let's err on the side of saying that he was the type of individual who heard that there was a need and offered up what he had as a solution, and God chose to use that and expound upon it. Which is a good reminder to us that the Holy Spirit gives giftings to us as believers, and he gives some gifts to some that he doesn't give to others. He gives some in a greater supply than he gives to others. But none of us should ever feel inadequate in thinking that we don't have something to offer to God and his kingdom, that we can't be useful in some way to encourage, to uplift, and to exhort other people. Even within, the, within this local church right here, right? Like we give you, we try to create as many opportunities as we can for you to exhort and encourage each other, whether that's through discussion groups on a Sunday morning so that you have an opportunity to participate in the service, whether that's through C groups where you have a chance to come and share what it is you are learning in the Sunday sermon personally and how that's translating to your life, whether that's through our accountability groups where you are encouraging and holding each other faithful to hold fast to God's word doesn't matter whether you have all the experience in the world or whether you've been Christian for a very long time. Like each one of us has a way to contribute to the building up of this body. You can make a difference even with limited resources. This boy certainly did with his lunch. Number two, you can impact the young and immature with your responses. Here's the question that I would want to ask the boy if I could. Did he feel empowered or pointless in giving his food to Andrew? What was the impression that the boy got when Andrew talked to him about his food? We know what Andrew told Jesus. He said, I found this boy with five loaves and two fish, but let's be honest, it's not near enough to do any type of dent to this problem. Is that how the boy felt too? I mean, did Andrew look at him and say, thanks kid, but we probably won't end up using it. Like, I wonder what kind of impression. Here's a guy who's walking and talking and living with Jesus, who has seen Jesus do miraculous things. What if this is the boy's only encounter with Jesus? What kind of impression did Andrew leave with him, right? And it's a reminder to us, and here's the challenge that I would give to to those that are older in our church in a setting where we're constantly asking our kids to be a part of what we're doing, right? Like, we're asking our kids to join us in here when we teach. We're asking our kids to be present at our C groups, to be around us, maybe not for every little piece that we're doing, but to be around us. Because for me, I want my boys and my little girl growing up in a setting where, yes, they hear about Moses and David. And yes, they hear about Paul and Barnabas and others and their great faith. But I also want them in a setting where they're learning about the faith of Tyson and Daniel Richardson I want them to hear the responses that John, Mark, and Maggie have in their first year of marriage to how God's providing for them. Our kids listen to everything that's happening. They just do. Me and my wife can try to have a conversation in the front seat of the car, and AJ's constantly like, what are you talking about? What are we doing? What was that? Right? Like They they hear everything. Let's be intentional with the things that they hear, because I wonder what this boy heard. Did this boy walk away thinking, I don't know why I just did that. I could have just eaten it. If, if, if I can be grateful and thankful for it, I could just eat it. I mean, Andrew has an opportunity to, to look at this little boy and say, you're going to be amazed at what God's going to do with this because I've seen him turn water into wine. I've seen him heal a paralytic man. Like it seems like a little, but man, I'm going to take this to Jesus and you're going to be wowed with what he does. 
I don't know that that was the experience. I think he looked at him and said, thanks, kid. And I'm sure the kid's thinking like, man, I don't know what, I don't know why I just gave that up. Be intentional with what our younger, our younger people here in this church experience from you. You're all going to have testing opportunities where your faith is going to be challenged. And I guarantee you, if not one, if not more than one, at least one kid is going to be around multiple times to see and witness your response. It's a good reminder to our dads on Father's Day to lead our families in a way where our kids are seeing a better experience than what this kid may have had with Andrew. Number three, you can always look for human solutions after anticipating God's provisions. I wonder if praying for God's provision prior to looking for human solutions would have led to a different response when loaves and fish were found. See, they're not thinking about what Jesus can do with five loaves and two fish. They're going and looking for the human solution first. And when there is no human solution to their liking, they kind of throw their hands up and say, I guess now God's going to have to do something. Imagine what Andrew's response may have been if the disciples had come together and said, okay, we know Jesus can do this on his own. He's asked us to go find something for him to work with. Let's pray about this, or let's at least anticipate that if we find anything, Jesus can do far more with it. How often do we not approach problems like that for ourselves? right? Like we, we're given some type of problem that has to be resolved. Maybe that's at work. Maybe that's within our family. Maybe it's a circumstance. Once we've exhausted all of the human solutions, then we typically sit down and pray and say, God, can you help me here? Like I, I, I've tried everything. I've, I've attempted everything. Nothing has worked. Looks like you're going to have to come through first. What if we just flipped the script there and said, oh, problem. Let me pray about that. Let me pray that God would give me Uh, spiritual eyes to see things that maybe otherwise I would miss as a possible solution. Help me not to just dismiss things that will actually end up being the solution because I'm so bent on me being the one to fix it or solve it. I wonder if Andrew would have reacted differently had he gone into it anticipating that God's going to do something. God has to, we'll never find enough food. But if we find some, man, he could really do something with that. And lastly, number four, do not assume your good intentions are always God's intentions. Do not assume your good intentions are always God's intentions. Jesus does this great miracle. Have the people sit down. There's much grass. He takes it. He blesses it, distributes it. They eat their fill, gathered them up, 12 baskets leftovers. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I'm just telling you, if I have to force somebody to be my king in the ways that I want him to be my king, he's probably not going to be a very good king. Like, like, what kind of king is Jesus if he has to be forcibly made into this position by people that, that are following him, Right? Um, be careful not to make Jesus into your life's tool because that's exactly what they're doing here. Here's the crazy thing. They rightfully deduce that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.18. That's where Moses promised a prophet, a better prophet that would come. I told you they're fans of Moses. And they, they totally put the pieces together and say, 
This is who we've been waiting for. This is who Moses promised us. But think about how they traditionally used Moses in the Old Testament too. They used him like a tool as well. Where's our food? Where's our water? Where's our, where's our, where's our promised land, right? Like there's not a whole lot of deep interest in Moses. It's when are you going to give something to us? Like, like you're, you're supposed to give us these things. And so they, they kind of leech on to Jesus right here too and say, hey, you're, you're, the, you're the better Moses. Maybe you will give us our food and our water and our promised land whenever we ask for it. These guys aren't interested in being set free from sin. They're, being, they're interested in being set free from Rome. This crowd is responding to signs, but they're more interested in being set free from Rome than from sin. He's appealing only as much as he is capable of giving them the life they desire. And their allegiance will shift when he fails to do so. It's exactly what Job was accused of in Job chapter 1 with Satan, right? Satan comes and says, the only reason Job likes you is because you give him the things that he wants. You take all those things away and he won't like you anymore and he won't be allegiant to you and, and, and he'll leave you, right? These guys would have failed that test. <laughs> this crowd would have failed that test if you had wreaked havoc on their next week they would, have, they would have abandoned Jesus. In fact, they abandoned him as soon as he just has a teaching session with them here in a minute. It says many of his disciples left him and never walked with him again. His teaching was hard, right? As soon as he doesn't function like a tool and does what he wants, what, what they want him to do, well, then he, he's no use, of, no use for them anymore, right? Job 1, 24, 21, he's worshiping God on his absolute worst day in life, right? Circumstances shift but his allegiance does not. Be careful not to make Jesus into your life's tool. Don't just show allegiance to him when he's doing the things that you want him to do. Number two, be willing to pause when your actions feel forced. Be willing to pause when your actions feel forced. They're ready to take him away by force to be their king. They're they're ready to work against Jesus's plans in order to fulfill theirs. And let's not think that we're always exempt from that either. We need to pause and make sure that God's intentions are being carried out and not just ours. And not try to force our intentions when God is clearly trying to redirect us in a different direction or situation. Be willing to ask if God may be moving in a different way than you anticipated. Would have felt very right. If if you were in that crowd, you've been waiting to be released from Rome. Rome is evil. Rome doesn't like Yahweh. Rome uh, doesn't appreciate the God of the Old Testament. It would have felt very right to try to get Jesus into a position to eradicate Rome and put us back on track where we should be. There wouldn't have been anything evil about that. It wouldn't have felt evil, right? But if they had just paused for a minute to realize we're having to force this, what kind of a king do we have to force to carry out the right thing? The best king would be the one leading the charge, not being forced to do it. Two truths that I want you to remember. Number one, we can trust God daily to provide for both our physical and our spiritual needs with anticipated intentional plans. He's going to take care of us physically and spiritually. And we can trust that he's going to do it by anticipating how we intentionally need to be provided for. And then number two, we will always be confronted with problems that are too big for human solutions but are never too big for Jesus' power. Always be confronted with problems that are too big for human solutions, but are never too big for Jesus' power. Takes care of us, but
both physically and spiritually, and he plans ways to do that. So going back to our summary sentence, he's going to create intentional opportunities this week. I guarantee you this week, if not everybody, a lot of us are going to encounter opportunities to appropriate the knowledge that we have gained about him into our daily lives. At least some of us, I'm sure, will encounter earthly problems this week that are going to require heavenly solutions. So if test day comes this week, will we pass or fail? Will we take the knowledge that we have that that God can provide? He can overcome limited human solutions to keep his promises. Will we trust him when those situations are faced by us? So specifically the application for this week, be intentional to pray first when encountering a problem before looking for human solutions as it may shape how you view the human solutions that are provided. No harm in just flipping the script right off the bat, not putting the cart before the horse every time. Even if you already feel like you know the human solution, there's zero harm in pausing, stopping, and praying for God's provision And he may lead you right into the human solution that you anticipated. But we need to break the trend of always looking for human solutions and resolutions first. And then once we've exhausted all of our efforts and we come back and say there's no restaurants, there's no food, and we didn't have enough money even if we needed to, even if we we had a restaurant to go buy the food. Now I guess we'll look to you, Jesus. That instead we need to back that up and say, "Let's, let's just automatically start looking to God first when we encounter a problem before we exhaust all of our human solutions, because it may shape how we view the human solutions. What maybe was not a human solution, not a solution for us, all of a sudden becomes a solution because we're, we're, we're anticipating and viewing things differently. Family worship questions this week. What are some ways that God has intentionally provided for our family when times were difficult? And then number two, what are some things we can pray specifically when we are facing a difficult problem? Let's pray together. God, we, we thank you that you give us opportunities to learn about you. We thank you that you give us opportunities to mature in our understanding of, of you and how you operate and how you're capable of providing. And God, we're thankful that we don't just gain this knowledge without opportunities to put it into practice. God, help us to be prepared and to anticipate that there may be opportunities this week where we are going to encounter situations and problems where human solutions just won't work. God, help us to look to you very quickly in those situations. Help us to appropriate the things that we have heard from your word. Help us to realize that when you do for one in Scripture, you can do for any at any point in history if it fits your plan. So God, help us not to just look at the Old Testament stories of how you did things and think, well, that happened thousands of years ago and doesn't apply to today. God, help us to see that you've you've left us a, a great resume of faithfulness to your people. You're always delivering. You're always providing, oftentimes in ways that were uh, far beyond what we could ask or think. And so God, help us to go into this week expecting more than we could ever ask or think. Help us to be quick to turn to you in trust. 
God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be so bold as to pray that you would give us tests this week so that we do have opportunity to work out our faith, to work out our sanctification, to work out our salvation this week. God, we ask and pray for opportunities to do that. Help us to pass those tests when they come. Help us to trust you ultimately so that you receive the glory from that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.